From the Media Factory in the South End of Burlington, Vermont, this is 99.3 FM, WBTV LP, Burlington. Streaming online at 99.3, WBTV.org. This is Write the Book, the show for writers and curious readers. I'm Shayla Connor Shapiro. Today on Write the Book, you'll hear a conversation with Donald Antrim, whose new memoir is One Friday in April, A Story of Suicide and Survival, published by Norton. He is the author of three novels, including Elect Mr. Robinson for a Better World and a memoir, The Afterlife. He has received awards from the MacArthur Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts, among others. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. One Friday in April offers a new understanding of suicide as a distinct mental illness. As the sun lowered in the sky one Friday afternoon in April 2006, Donald Antrim found himself on the roof of his Brooklyn apartment building, afraid for his life. In this memoir, he vividly recounts what led him to the roof and what happened after he came back down. Two hospitalizations, weeks of fruitless clinical trials, the terror of submitting to ECT, as well as years of fitful recovery and setback. When I spoke with Donald Antrim, I began by asking him about his statement that he believes suicide, quote, is a natural history, a disease process, not an act or a choice, a decision or a wish. We begin with his answer to this question. After I left the hospital the first time, I felt very aware of my long history of of what we had called depression. But I saw it then as a kind of a continuum leading up to the episode where I run onto the roof. I wanted to find a stronger word for depression, uh, something that wasn't so misleading and soft and something that hadn't been used to death. You know, uh, we mean so many things by it. Mm-hmm. So suicide for me became, became the word of choice for what I'd gone through over the course of my life. In other words, it, it, it didn't refer to me at that point just to the, to the threat that I'd felt or the threat that I'd been in when I ran up onto the roof, but also to the long progression of events and periods of life and difficulties and so on that I'd had leading up to that point. Right. So to, to see it that way made more sense to me because I was thinking then that, that the suicide does, doesn't have agency in, in the sense that if it's an illness, if we're in illness, if we're in a psychotic illness, or if we're, if we're sick, we're not exactly thinking clearly when we make our deliberations and our choices. So in order for that to make sense, I guess, that's what I mean to say, it seemed to me that, that, that there had to be some picture of an illness, and that was my picture, my my story. So that's how I came to that, to using the term suicide for everything mm-hmm. instead of depression. And, and, and also as a way of, of making the case that this had been going on in my life, even before I knew it. Right. I, I, it's interesting. Uh, I can't believe that you, speaking about, you know, your life and how much went into this, I can't believe how much you covered in this book. And it's like, this tiny little gem of a book that just conveys so much. It was from just from the perspective of writing a book. It was very interesting to me that there was so much in there. Um, 
So you mentioned a second ago your story, and, and so I thought we would just uh, go ahead and mention that in April of 2006, you, you very nearly killed yourself, you very nearly died. Right. The book begins there with you having gone to the roof of your building with very conflicted feelings, and I thought that was interesting. You, you were afraid that you would succeed, it sounded like. Right. Um, and then much later in the book, you talk about when we have two opposing forces telling us what to do, you know, uh, part of me wants to stay home, part of me wants to go out. That and, right. and, and that and that sort of later when I read that, I was thinking about this, where you were afraid you would succeed. Um, and so that April, uh, that's the title, One Friday in April, that, that ties into that, that day on the roof. Um, so, so when you think about that day now, do you, is there a lot of fear around that day or is it more calm? No, I feel more calm about it now. Yeah. You know, um, it's been a good long time. Yeah. And I think that there was something decisive for me when I came down off the roof after five or so hours of, of, of running around and frantically looking over the edge of the roof and that sort of thing. Right. When I finally came down, there was something uh, strong in that decision, you know, for me. So I've never really looked back at that time with a lot of fear. One thing I found really interesting was you write about how when you were on the roof, one thing that really filled you with fear was the hospital. Right. That was interesting to me, right? I mean, that you're already on the roof and what you fear is the hospital. And um, do, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, I was terrified of the hospital. I was terrified of what would happen to me there. I was terrified that if I admitted to the hospital, I'd never leave. I think when I came down to the back to the apartment, down the stairs from the roof, I, I, I think I felt a, I felt a, a kind of an awareness that if I went away to the hospital, which I would be doing at that point, I knew I would, that I would be gone for a long time, that it would take a long time, that this would all go on for a long time, and it did. And it did. Getting better. Yeah, I, I was I was scared to be there. I didn't know what it was. Uh, I didn't know specifically what I was afraid of. I think I was afraid I, I had phantom sort of fears of crumbling asylums and that sort of. Thing. But I was also afraid of treatment. I was afraid of ECT. I was afraid of what might what I might have to do to get better. Yeah. Um. When it comes to uh, hospitalization, that, that just reminds me of something in the book. Uh, well, it, it reminds me of diagnoses. And you have this sentence early in the book. Uh, it, it begins, depression, hysteria, melancholia, nervousness, neurosis. And it just goes on for almost two pages, these uh, synonyms for mental illness. That was fascinating to me. That was really interesting. And I wondered... To what extent that was just kind of a riff, and to what extent did you get your thesaurus out? <laughs> By then, I didn't really need a thesaurus so much. No, I'd been through so much, um, but it was a way of a way of showing how many ways we have of talking about mental illness mm -hmm. and how confused it can get. You know, what do we mean by madness? After all, right? Uh, what do we mean by craziness? Uh, what do diagnoses mean to us when we get them? 
Um, we have such a long history with this and such a large language around it. Yeah. And I wanted to simplify that, you know, for the purposes of the book. Right. And, and um, the words for things, they do evolve over time. You, later, you talk about consumption, which was a word that was used for, I, I imagine, hundreds of years, maybe, but yes. uh, until they figured out that it was tuberculosis, and then that word went away. Right. And there is like an evolution of of diagnosis. And maybe that is, I'm trying to remember actually the context in which your list of words came in. And perhaps that was still in talking about, let's bring ourselves to talking about suicide as, as a disease. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the things I want to talk to you about, my show is about writing, uh, as well mm -hmm. as just talking about the books themselves. And, um, you know, I, I, I almost wonder if it was hard to care about the craft of writing as you're working on this book because the subject matter was so huge and so incredibly intense. You know, at a certain point, do we care about the craft? Um, but I don't know if you have any th thoughts on that. But there is a craft question I have about your list, um, which is, you know, this this list of diagnoses goes on, or these list of mental illness words goes on for nearly two pages. And then the next sentence after it, the new paragraph starts, I was thin and cold, and it returns us to the roof. And I thought that was a really interesting transition. Um, and you you have a lot of wonderful, very interesting transitions through this book, and I'm going to talk about some more later. But um, does this make you think of anything to, to talk about I waited a long time to write this book. I, I waited. I didn't. I didn't write this a year after I went to the hospital or the second hospitalization. Mm -hmm. I waited a good long time. And during that time, I thought about it incessantly. You thought about writing it incessantly. Yeah, I thought about the book. I thought about writing it. I wrote it over and over in my head. I, you know, I, I, I just thought about the book almost monomaniacally. I mean, if you'd known me at that time, you know, you would have heard about it if you saw me. You know, I would have been, I would have collared you and, and been talking about it. So I was thinking about what I had to do to write this book. And I didn't, I didn't really know what I had to do, except I, I knew that it had to be short. Right. Yeah. And, and quick. Right. Uh, but by the time I got around to doing it, I was very much thinking about craft. I was very much thinking about how to make this book work, how to keep it moving how to make it exciting to read so that it wouldn't drag. Uh, and the transitions are part of that effort, you know? Right. It's interesting though, because um, I, think it was, I think it was the Kirkus review of this book uh, talked about the narrative being very, dis I, I don't know if this is the word they used, but it made it sound like the narrative is disjointed, like the mind of the person going through this situation. And I thought, that that was both astute and a little bit uh, misleading because I think it's very purposeful, the disjointedness. Right. It's very, right. very much, I think, a, a purposeful narrative approach, um, uh, which was, I, I, I don't know, it was impressive to me. And then, you know, sometimes you feel like you're all over the place. And then if you look a little more closely, there's just really interesting, like, um, I'm going to skip ahead to my other question about structure. Um, so, so here's another uh, transition that I found really interesting. There's a knife that you talk about. I don't know how to pronounce it. Sabatier. Sabatier. Okay. This knife, 
is very important in a lot of ways. It, it, it's, and, and you are able to use it as an object that shows up in different scenes and ties together your childhood and the moments in which your adult self is contemplating suicide. And then also it shows up in the hospital. And that knife is such a concrete object that we can see, even if I don't know how to pronounce it, I can see it in my mind, or I can see what I think it might look like in my mind. And that kind of helps keep us uh, oriented. Um, so that that was a, one moment that I just thought, oh, this is a very purposeful structure. This is a very thoughtful right. organization of ideas. At the same time, I didn't always know, I didn't always know exactly where I was going next. I think some of the transitions away from ideas and toward experience are to keep us grounded, to keep our feet on the ground as we keep going, you know, so that the thing wouldn't become too abstract. Right. Uh, the knife maybe serves that purpose. You know, it does link to the childhood, to my childhood, because it came up from my childhood, my parents' kitchen, you know, to me. Right. But I don't think I was so purposeful at all points. You know, I don't think I always knew what I was doing. I think I was going, sort of finding my way, feeling my way through it. When you wrote the book, did you kind of write it all sort of as an outpouring in a single draft and then go back to it? Or were you consciously changing things as you went? I was working on it as I went. Um, it wasn't a, really an outpouring. It went fairly slowly. It, it, it went, it, well, once, once I made several attempts, I did different things that weren't working. Mm -hmm. And I spent several years writing a book that wasn't going to work. And once I simplified that, thanks to my editor at the New Yorker, Deborah Treisman, mm -hmm. once that got simplified, I was able to really proceed. And by then, I was so ready to write it, you know, that I, 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 it was never an outpouring. I've never really had an outpouring, <laughs> but, but it did proceed fairly evenly. I was able to move over the course of a little over a year to, to, to do this final version. What was different about the one you set aside? Well, I'd had this idea to, incorporate Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, oh. which I think of as a suicide narrative. Oh, interesting. It's a book that I've taught. It's a book that I have huge respect for. And so I was trying to tie Frankenstein into this narrative. And it just was too much. It was, it was just thudding along. It was, it was not, it was not alive. Which are two really great metaphors for Frankenstein. <laughs> right. <laughs> so when Deborah and I decided that we would do an excerpt for The New Yorker, she, she, she came back to me and said that she had an excerpt, but that she unfortunately couldn't find a way to incorporate any of the Frankenstein material. And I just big sigh of relief for me because I just knew right away that I was at the point that I needed to be at, that, mm -hmm. that we could strip that away mm -hmm. and I could just write this book straight. Yeah. 
It's funny, I'm, you know, you're mentioning Frankenstein reminds me of a moment in the book, I think a pretty pivotal moment probably in your experience as well as in the book, where you're looking in a mirror and you see, you see an alternative vision of yourself in that mirror. I think you're right. in the hospital and it's a rather grotesque right. image. That was very interesting. My psychosis got to a very advanced place over those months. And I really saw myself, if you can imagine this, and I don't, I saw myself as I was. And I also saw this sick face. It was psychosis. It was, it was sickness. Yeah. You know, and it was, it came near the end of, my medication trial before I began ECT. Mm-hmm. Um, now you, you um, maybe you would have done ECT anyway. I actually think maybe you were scheduled for it already, or they were certainly talking to you about it when you got a phone call from David Foster Wallace. Um, and it sounds like you didn't know him that well. Um, no, didn't know him at all, really. I'd met him a few times. So what a generous act for him to yeah. seek you out. Do you want to just tell that story briefly? It got to the point, I was on a long medication trial, a long medication trial with a drug called nortriptyline. And that was two months in the hospital, and it really wasn't working. I was getting worse. And at the end of that trial, the doctors hauled me into the, the little dining room area and told me that they wanted to give me ECT, that they needed my consent, that it wouldn't hurt me, that it would help me, that they thought they could get me better with it. And I was just in tears. I was sitting on a stool, I remember, and crying and crying and crying and saying, no, no, I'm not sick. I'm not sick that way. I don't need that. A little while later, I think of it as the same day, but it may have been the next day or the day after, But it was soon after the phone rang and someone called my name and I went to the patient phone and it was Wallace. And he said that he had heard about my condition from a mutual friend and he wanted to find out how I was and pretty quickly advised me to do ECT if they offered it to me. He asked, have they offered you ECT? And I said, yes, they have. And he said, I want you to do it. We spent a long time on the phone. He kept telling me I I needed to hear it over and over. I needed a lot of reassurance. Um, And it, it gave me resolve. I went to the doctors and I said, let's do ECT. So it came, it was a bit of an act of God. It came at exactly this right moment. I mean, it's incredibly, uh, it's either an incredible coincidence or someone knew you were struggling with this and sought him out for his doing this but either way it's both was both yeah yeah that's fantastic um in the book you sometimes will address i i at first i thought you were addressing the reader then eventually i came to wonder if you were addressing a suicidal reader specifically or maybe yourself or someone else i wasn't sure it didn't end up mattering really i liked it i liked it when you would be addressing a you in the book uh there's um there's a, uh, here's a few examples, and they're, they're throughout the book, but uh, were I dead, might you live, is one of the moments. Have you wanted to die? 
And then um, there's also this wonderful present tense paragraph when you do go in for your ECT, and it begins, you lie in your gown and your socks on the table. Um, when do, Can you talk about deciding to address a you in the book? It happened early on without my really knowing or meaning it. Uh, and I think that passage is when I'm on the roof and there, there I see people uh, on other roofs mm. having drinks or whatever on their roof decks. And I ask, would they have known... And this, so this other, that wasn't a you, I guess, but it's, it's this idea that there's, there's this other audience that there's a, that there's a, it's a direct address that I want to get into. Is it to a, the reader in general? Yes, it is. You know, it, it is. As the book moves along, it becomes, I think, more specifically tuned into a reader who's suffering. Um, as far as that section in the middle with the ECT, I think that I'm seeking a, a, a very vivid experience of that. Yes. I yeah. want to put the reader into that experience. Yes. And I also noticed in that scene, your sentence structure changed. It's very simplified. It's very subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object. You know, it was just a really interesting moment where you just kind of boil it right down to what it was like being there. And, right. And brought me right in to that moment by doing that. When you were young, your family was a difficult family to be a part of. Um, sure. And you've written about this. I have not read that book, but you've written about this. And your parents had terrific, horrible fights, and you you were convinced that one might kill the other. And when you were a young boy, you thought you might, little boy, you you were worried one one of them might kill the other. You you worried you'd be called upon to testify or to accuse one of your parents. Um, that was very moving to me. Um, do you have strong opinions about what that sort of childhood experience leads into, as far as? suicide uh as a disease or as far as you know maybe in somebody who doesn't develop suicidal impulses as far as depression and the extent to which that led you to who you became well when i was a kid no one really thought about that as child abuse but i can think about that as child abuse now I can't say, we can't say whether an experience like that is necessarily going to lead to suicide. It hasn't led that way for my sister, my younger sister, mm -hmm. Terry. Uh, but it did for me, you know, over, over the course of many years. Um, I think we understand that constant warring in a house is as bad as pretty much anything else that can happen to a kid. I was in the role of, or at least I imagined myself to be, I don't think she had this idea so much, but I felt in the role of Terry's protector to some degree. I would rush out into the fights. I would, I would fight with my parents as they fought. So I was 
more vulnerable to what was going on. Uh, Terry, my sister, retreated, and I came forward. Mm-hmm. But I can't say I do have strong feelings about about that. Uh, you know about about that kind of abuse of children. I absolutely do. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was little, though, no one thought that way. You know, um, no one would have ever called child protective services. Now, did that even might. exist? I don't know if that existed. Probably I'm it not did. Sure. Probably <laughs> did, but yeah. Another thing that that you experienced was uh, displacement. You you moved a lot, like like physically, like you moved a lot. Yeah, we moved family. all the time. Right, which is interesting. Um, you know, I've been doing this show a long time, and so so many of my writing guests had that experience as children. Really. And I feel like moving a lot leads people to become writers in some ways, or certainly contributes to it. And I think one of the things that happens is it's hard to make friends when you move a lot. And so you, you write, and that's, and that's the, the connection you have with the world. That's me, like, telling you what I think. But what do you think? <laughs> well, I always made friends. Wherever we were, I made friends. And then those friendships would get busted up by the next move. Right. So I was you know, socially adapted pretty well. You know, I could function in school. I could eventually, by the time I went away to school, I was in rough shape. But by the, but once I got away to school, after a few months, I was in good shape Mm -hmm. or relatively good shape. I mean, I was anxious. I was an anxious kid. Um, and I had a lot of problems on the way in life and problems in living. Mm-hmm. But I did have friends and had friendships along the way. Mm-hmm. They just didn't survive. And yeah, the displacement is very alarming after a while, you know. Uh, I, I guess I came to assume that we wouldn't be anywhere for more than a couple of years. And we never were more than a couple of years anywhere. But that idea of growing up in a home... You know, and having that place be, I have no concept of that. Right. I don't know what that has to do with my becoming a writer. Uh, There are all kinds of reasons that I think that happened. Yeah. But but, uh, it it undoubtedly has something to do with it. Mm -hmm. Also has something to do with the fact that I'm in the same apartment here in Brooklyn for years and years. You know, not wanting to move, just not wanting to do it. Right. Even though it's an apartment that you've been through a lot in. Or, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Um, let's see. Uh, at one point, you you write, um, my apprehension of suicide first came as a denial of it. And that was it. I wondered if the apprehension of suicide is also sort of an understanding that this is a part of you. And so there's like a strong denial. Um, but... Maybe you, can you speak to that at all? Well, I, I think I mean there that I, my denial was that I would ever do anything about it. In other words, that it would ever be a real thing to me, mm-hmm. that it would go away, that these feelings that I was beginning to have more and more strongly in this period of time, that it was, it's a denial of those feelings. You know, um, this isn't really happening. This isn't really happening. Right. 
so th- that's what that denial is. But 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 at that point, the apprehension is is strong enough. You know, I'm I'm beginning to see it. I'm beginning to imagine it. I'm beginning to to picture it. You know, it's not long after that that I'm carrying a knife out into the living room and still denying that that I would ever do anything, which I think is a common experience for people who are in that predicament, you know. You're still sort of in denial even once you've checked yourself into various hospitals, too. Isn't that true? I mean, was there a certain aspect of denial in there, or was that not denial so much as just confusion and distress? Well, one thing I experienced when I went into the hospital was a sense of relief. Mm. And at, right away, I felt I felt relief that I was in a place where I couldn't bring harm on myself, or at least not easily. Mm-hmm. So I was safe from that, and that actually diminished the pressure of it. Mm-hmm. it. It made things a little easier. I was able to breathe a little easier. That changed because I got sicker over time. But when I first came into the hospital, I felt a sense of relief. Okay, great. When... When your friends visited you in the hospital, you write that you felt ashamed and they felt abashed and that you felt abashed. <laughs> um, so I wondered if the shame and the sort of s- the part of this that's stigma, part of why you wrote this, um, was your drive to write a memoir or was it both to do that and also to offer new insight and lessen shame? It was to offer some kind of insight in the form of a memoir. It was the only form I had, you know, it was the only way that I could do it, mm-hmm. was to offer my own story. Uh, as far as those meetings with friends, yeah, they were just, the visits were uncomfortable. People didn't know what to say. Which is natural. I mean, that's sort of. Yeah. I didn't I mean, know what to say. Right. Yeah. But I felt the beginnings of stigma there. In, in those meetings, in those in those times when my friends came. Yeah. I felt separated. Separated out, not having a, a life that I used to have, not having a life that connected to their lives. Right. I was in this other 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 life now of of, of hospitals and sickness and need for care. And then after you get out, this is interesting. I found this interesting. And it's so it's again such a natural instinct, but you make jokes about it. You kind of in order to kind of like find your way back to your friends, right. there's a sort of um dismissal and discount through humor of, of what Right, I played to it. Yeah. Do you do you find yourself not doing that anymore? No, I don't do that anymore. Yeah. No, that's over. I did that for a while. Do you still have the same circle of friends for the most part, or has that shifted? It shifted some, but yeah. the strong friends that I had at that time, I still have. Okay. Sorry, you know, sometimes when you interview someone about a memoir, the questions get super personal, and then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, is this any of my business? I don't know. Okay. Do you understand, um, and I, I feel like partly there's a great, um, there's a great, education to going through something like your hospital stay because you learn so much about what's going on in your body. Do you feel like you pretty well understand the role that sleep deprivation plays and the fact that good health requires sleep and poor health inhibits sleep? And it's just such a terrible cycle. Right. 
I do have a good sense of that. I and mean, I make sure that I try to, I try to get enough sleep. Yeah. Sleep deprivation is a killer. Yeah. And you also write about the importance of touch in a person's life, which may or may not be that related to the sleep thing, but uh, these are things that re- that are required for our good health. Um, and I think you're mostly talking about like starting as children, we need to be touched, uh, right. hugged, and uh, a hand on the shoulder, a ruffle of the hair, you know, the occasional physical contact. Right. But I also I also mean touch in in a, in a larger sense. Uh, being in touch, being connected to community, having a place in the world. Right. Being in contact. Being connected. Yeah. Yeah, you had this great moment in the book where you talk about uh, often people who are in minorities or in some other way, you know, feel cast out aside from uh, the majority, are able to have community at least, but that that's not the case with people uh, who suffer from suicide. Um, and uh, and that that's something you go through very, uh, very much alone, very much in isolation. Yes. That was really I think that's right. Yeah. And then there's some kind of community that builds up in the hospital if you're lucky. I was fortunate. I was in a great hospital. I was able to have to make, as I got better in particular, I was able to make brief friendships with people in the hospital. So there was touch there, even though we weren't allowed to touch, there was no touching in the hospital. There was a sense of contact and connection there in, in, in the common room. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's like school, you know, somebody to eat lunch with. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. It felt very much like that. Yeah. Um, Donald, I always like to ask my guests what they've been reading lately that they might recommend to listeners. Do you have any, like a couple titles that you've read lately that you were particularly interested in? Something that I've read lately that's great is Akhil Sharma's Family Life. And... I've been rereading 60 stories by Donald Barthelme and the stories of John Cheever, both of which I've had around for years and both of which are influential for me. Okay, wonderful. But that's, that's kind of what I have going on right now. Do you, are you writing stories right now? Not right now. Not right now. I'll get back to it. Are you writing anything or are you mostly focused on one Friday in April and you've got a tour to do now? And so I'm I'm mainly focused on this right now, but I have a manuscript, an older manuscript that I'm going to haul back out and see what I can do with. Is that the novel you mentioned in the book? Yeah. (laughs) That sounded great, actually. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I'm going to do next. Yeah. I always like to end these interviews asking for a little bit of advice for other writers. In your case, I wondered if you have any advice for writing a book that is personal, um, but maybe has a larger intention, or even if it's not an intention, a larger service to provide to people who will read it. I don't know if I do, really. I mean, this is the this is something that I never imagined doing. I never imagined writing a work of utility, you know, <sighs> this is something that, that could be used and not just you know, read. Right. And and I don't mean to make it sound like a how-to manual or anything. It's a very beautifully written memoir. I was I was so in the story, but I took a lot away from it also. That's what I mean. 
I don't really have any advice for that, except maybe to be direct and clear and describe the world and to keep, keep describing the world. You know, I, I, I would say that if, if a writer is trying to write a book that's both personal and, and has some utility that maybe there, it'd be important to stay, to, to stay clear of abstraction, mm-hmm. you know, to not philosophize too much. Um, but to stick with the story and let the story be the be the thing that makes any sense it does yeah absolutely um the book is one friday in april a story of suicide and survival by donald antrim who's been my guest today published by norton and um donald i want to thank you so much for speaking with me today thank you it's been a pleasure thank you for having me on from the media factory in the south end of burlington vermont this is 99.3 fm WBTVLP, Burlington. This is Write the Book, the show for writers and curious readers. That was an interview with Donald Antrim about his new book, One Friday in April, A Story of Suicide and Survival, published by Norton. You can find more of his work at newyorker.com. In presenting his viewpoint that suicide is a disease, Donald Antrim experiments early in the book with a presentation of labels and names for mental illness. As you heard in the interview, this list begins depression, hysteria, melancholia, nervousness, neurosis, and it goes on for nearly two pages. This week's Write the Book prompt is to use a list of words in an interesting way to make a point. Perhaps you're writing about the foliage season. Maybe uh, it would be interesting to present a running list of trees and bushes that offer brilliant color in the fall. Maple, oak, elm, hackberry, white birch, larch, tamarack, hazelnut. What could you do to make such a list both interesting, as poetic sounds, and evocative? How might you then transition back into your text to continue making your point? And my point, I have none about foliage. It was just an example. But I'm sure you can come up with something that's appropriate for your own work. Good luck with your work in the coming week, and tune in next week for another prompt or suggestion. I would love your feedback about the show. Let me know if you'd like me to interview certain authors or if you have events to announce. If you like the show, please rate it where you find it and like it on social media and talk about it with your friends. Be sure to tell them about the show and about the podcast site, writethebook.podbean.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, lots of other sites. And you can visit Write the Book on Twitter and on Facebook for updates. You can also access the podcast at my own website, shelaughswithoutus.com. I'm Shayla Connor Shapiro. You've been listening to Write the Book. This is 99.3 FM, WBTVLP, Burlington, Vermont, streaming online at 99.3 WBTV.org. Stay well and have a great week.